Trenton Marsh was staring down the barrel of a gun. He'd heard that expression countless times and always assumed it was just that, a figure of speech. But at this angle, with the sun behind him, he could see clearly past the muzzle of the chrome-plated pistol, down the pipe, almost to the chamber where he knew a bullet was waiting at the head of a coiled spring for the order to end his life. Just the twitch of a finger, and it would all be over. The thought brought on a thick mental fatigue, dimming his vision around the edges, making his legs feel like Play-Doh, but with it came a strange sense of control, as if this face-to-face encounter with his own impending death had somehow granted him the ability to slow time. Not that it was much help, since his own movements slowed with it. Still, it gave him the illusion of a few extra seconds in which to weigh his options. He cranked his head and looked down at the 30-foot drop waiting behind him should he jump or take a bullet. The roiling spray and subwoofer resonance of the water dared him to take his chances. Trent had been coming up to Picture Falls Christian Camp each summer since he was six, but this was the closest look he'd gotten at the actual falls, having only admired them from a comfortable distance before. Down below, the crashing water continually filled a large round basin. Were he to jump, even if he somehow avoided breaking both legs, he'd bob around down there for a while in the churning waters, trying to make his way to where the basin emptied into the river. He'd be an easy target, fish in a barrel. He'd heard that expression many times, too. Always seemed like an odd phrase, until now. He glanced down at the familiar weapon in his hands. It felt strangely heavy and clumsy. Between his submerged feet, the continual rivulet of blood rolled down from the injured man, crumpled in a heap a few yards upriver. His once handsome face clamped down hard in a grotesque sock puppet of pain. Trenton forced his eyes back to the man with the gun, completing the circle. Oh, he realized, he's talking to me. The man's crisp voice emerged from the ambient soundscape around them as time returned to normal. I'm serious, kid. Step away from the edge and give me what I asked for. I won't tell you again. For just an instant, uninvited and inconvenient, an image of Zoe's face flashed into Trenton's mind, and he wondered if she was safe. Then it was gone, self-interest crowding it out. He looked back at the waterfall one more time, swallowing hard. There was no denying it. That was his only route of escape. Don't even think about it, the man warned. I've got a hair trigger here. You jump, and I'll put three bullets in you before gravity takes hold. A thick scream of pain filled the air, and then there was more blood in the water. Lots more. It was a momentary distraction, and, he was certain, the only chance he would get. Trenton took a deep breath and made his move. Zachary Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, He caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already attached to it. Our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels, is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. After years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end of And the 2015 Carol Award for debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian-type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. 
My name is Zachary Bartles, and I am an author. I don't say that with the chip-on-shoulder, protest-too-much, false conviction of the vanity-pressed victim. You know, I'm a published author, emphasis on the word published. By the way, in my experience, actually published authors never introduce themselves this way. Nor with the kind of snobby elitism that I've encountered, albeit very rarely, of the veteran author who's clawed his or her way to the top and now sits there on high, looking down on anyone who might be considered indie or even midlist, or, like me, trapped somewhere between the two. I mean, I am a published author, published both in the big leagues and on the indie tip, but I'm not at all sure how to inflect it. It all happened real quick. I finished the manuscript for my, I guess it was my second or third novel that I really thought was worth being read, and got an agent on the fifth or sixth query, which is kind of unheard of, put together a proposal and got a multi-book deal with my first choice publisher on the first submission. You've heard of them. It's a big one. The oldest Christian publisher in America, founded while George Washington was still alive, and it's only gotten bigger. Now it's an imprint of a larger megalithic media company, one of what they call the Big Six, which are actually the Big Five now, but whatever. The point is, I had arrived. In November of 2014, I was on the cover of a magazine. Now think niche, boutique publication specifically about Christian fiction, but still. With the headline, Zachary Bartles, the suspense author everyone is talking about. Again, it's not exactly Publishers Weekly, but it felt great in the wake of my debut novel, Playing Saint, hitting the shelves while lots of five-star reviews were floating around. Now fast forward two and a half years. I'm writing a sequel to the same book that, quote, everyone was allegedly talking about, and I want to make sure Amazon is still fulfilling orders for that book from their warehouses, hopefully with Amazon Prime free two-day shipping, and I'm thinking maybe I'll pick up some cheap, like-new, used copies for giveaways when the sequel comes out. It's a bit of an open secret that authors do that. Now, something you know if you're an author. For at least six months after your first book comes out, you check the Amazon page obsessively to see what the book's ranking is and to glance quickly at the average user rating. But that was a long time ago for me, at least in book years. Almost every book goes through a pretty natural bell curve situation, and there comes a time when checking sales is anything but an ego boost. So I'm prepared for it when I see that the book is ranked at 770,000. What I'm not prepared for is the fact that it's listed at 299, new, with fulfillment not by Amazon, but by bookworm underscore corner, whatever that is ostensibly some discounter that bought up a bulk of my books for pennies on the dollar with the intent of practically giving them away. Not really wanting to know what I'll find, I click over to my other traditionally published novel, The Last Con. Same story. Not two bucks, but about five. My inner spin machine immediately begins damage control. More people will buy them at this price, I tell myself. This might be a blessing in disguise, renew interest in, in these titles. And of course, this doesn't change the quality of the actual books in any way. Both were and are critically acclaimed by any measure, with glowing positive reviews from major outlets like Library Journal and RT Book Reviews. But I'm not really buying into my own spin. To me, there's always been something ultra-sad about the bargain bin. 
ever since I worked for a now-defunct national Christian bookstore chain. I remember once in the late 90s or early 80s when Win Ben Stein's Money was a thing on Comedy Central, I learned that Mr. Stein had written a couple of novels, spy thriller type stuff, which intrigued me. So I found one of them used on eBay, bought it, and read it. It was pretty good, but something about the fact that it was out of print and scarce and that writing novels was no longer even mentioned in Stein's bio bummed me out. Just yesterday, I got a text from my, what's the guy version of BFF? I'm not going to say bro. Uh, Anyway, I got a text from Ted asking me, is it sad that I just rescued a handful of my books out of a store called Dollar Tree? Now, Ted's had 25 books published with a dozen major publishers, but yeah, I told him it's kind of sad. But it's all part of the circle of life for a book. How long it takes to make that circuit, that's the variable. As I sit there and look at my own book in the digital bargain bin, I can't help but think about a national writing conference I attended a month or so before that magazine cover went to press, well, full disclosure, I think it's online only, so went to virtual press. The conference was in Dallas, 105 degrees outside, but I never left the hypothermia-inducing air conditioning of the conference center. And the very first workshop I attended, within the first 10 minutes, the veteran presenter mentioned, just as an aside, that the worst thing that can happen to an author is to get signed by a big publisher right off the bat. Expectations of sales are too high, your competition for marketing and publicity budgets is way more stiff, and you warrant much less time and attention from your editor when there are authors on the same imprint selling hundreds of thousands of copies of each title. A friend of mine, also newly signed to the same publisher at the time, nudged me and snickered. We both snickered, knowingly, secure in our knowledge that we were the exceptions that proved the rule. At the end of the day, it looks like maybe she actually was... Anyway, who wanted to go the route this presenter was recommending to get a deal with a smaller press, build your readership over several years, build a backlist of books, then maybe shoot for the big time? At any rate, it was too late. Contracts already signed, hefty advance already partially spent. I sat there in the pre-glow of friends and family around the country texting me pictures of my books on the shelf at their local Barnes & Noble, blissfully unaware that 30 months later... Some sub-distributor would be selling that book for three bucks on Amazon. And here's the crazy thing. I still use that little snippet of text called the suspense writer everyone's talking about in my bio, although I now tell myself I'm using it semi-ironically. So yeah, I'm an author. I'm a published author. I'm an indie author. I don't know. It's weird. I just got back from 10 days in Israel. I was invited by Cliff Graham, a friend of mine, who is a legit best-selling author in the Christian book market and beyond it. As in, a few of us got tattoos in Jerusalem themed around his books, and Cliff didn't even blink because he gets an email every other day from some guy who just got a Cliff Graham-inspired tat. He's also gone back and forth between traditional publishing and indie, very publicly open about the fact that he really prefers putting out his own books independently. And yet, here's where my head's at. I met a guy on that trip who runs a phenomenal men's ministry, has a huge platform of tens of thousands, and has put out a couple of books as part of that ministry. And I caught myself in the back of my mind mentally smirking when he talked about his books. 
It makes no sense. We're on this trip with a friend slash hero of mine whose dream is to be able to just write his books and get them directly to the reader without dealing with the cumbersome machine. And here I am having to mentally check some illogical smugness about my own $3 novel. Even though the big publisher didn't renew my contract. And my agent and I have parted ways. And the sequel I'm finishing up, I'm putting it out on an indie pub. It's always a little pathetic when someone finds their identity in something they used to do or used to be. Whether the glory days of college football or the 80s hairband that had one hit. Of course, I can tell myself I've now made it past the gatekeepers twice, right? Thus legitimizing myself as an author. Despite my frequently lamenting how a good chunk of the books sold in the traditional publishing sphere are actually pretty worthless. Ghost-written memoirs of reality TV pseudo-celebrities and the like. So what are my false presuppositions that are feeding this stuff? And how does my fragile little male ego fit into it? And did these things land me where I am today as an author? And really, where is that? That's kind of what this podcast will deal with. Actually, it's first and foremost the chapter-by-chapter reading of a suspense novel called Clinch about a couple of small-town teenagers who find themselves sinking ever deeper into a centuries-old conspiracy until they have no choice but to try and blow the whole thing apart. 33 chapters in 33 weeks. That's the fiction part. But there's also the not-fiction part. Looking at the world of Christian publishing and all that goes with it, not in a general, detached way, rather through the lens of a particular story, my story. It's a small story, but serves to illuminate several much bigger ongoing narratives all around it, which just happens to be my favorite kind of story. And for those who are authors, aspiring authors, would-be authors, has-been authors, or readers of such books, I think it will be worth the telling and the listening. And we'll dig into that a little more next week. But for now, let's get back to Trenton Marsh in Chapter 1 of Clinch, a novel. days earlier. Quote, if your life is ordinary, you're not living like Jesus. Ordinary doesn't honor God or bring you closer to him. Only when you're teetering on the edge in real danger of losing it all and radically trusting God alone to keep you from falling, are you trusting God at all? End quote. From Insane Faith, A Guide to Extreme Christianity for the Truly Faithful by Stephen Branding. Charterhouse, 2014, page 104. It was a stupid idea. Trenton could see that now. Jason had tried to warn him in advance, but to be fair, Jason was not exactly an authority on the fairer sex and how to impress them. In fact, while he frequently claimed to be Trent's devoted wingman, it often seemed more like he was out to sabotage his friend's love life, such as it was, for his own amusement. Trenton drew back another arrow and let it fly toward the target. Bullseye. He smirked and glanced at Zoe, who was honed in on her phone and hadn't seen this third perfect shot. It was unlikely that she'd seen any of them. So much for impressing her with his skill and precision. It was Friday, the last full day of camp, and Trenton was feeling the urgency. He and Zoe had been doing this little dance all week, smiling at each other from across the dining hall, flirty comments and raised eyebrows in the program center, pairing up for team-building activities. But time was almost up 
and Trenton had yet to make a decisive move. It had to happen today if he wanted to leave here with something substantial between the two of them, something he could build on. If he failed in this, he just knew she'd be wearing some jocks football jersey before school even started, leaving Trenton a faded memory. Here at camp, he had the advantage of forced close quarters, a limited pool of competing young bachelors, and chance after chance to make a lasting connection. Here, it didn't matter that, well, almost 17, Trenton lacked a car or even a driver's license. It didn't hurt him that he wasn't part of the popular crowd at school or in demand with the ladies. It was a different world here. Just like travelers will fork over 18 bucks for a turkey sandwich at the airport because, well, what choice do you have? The rules were different at camp, and he'd squandered six precious days of airport pricing waiting for his courage to kick in. Zoe was interested in him. There was no doubt about that. She and her small entourage had spent the previous afternoon's free time with Trent and Jason swimming in the camp's small inland lake. She looked amazing in her one-piece swimsuit, but Trenton was more than a bit self-conscious about his lack of muscle definition. His was, at most, a two-pack, if he counted the slight vertical indentation bifurcating his abdomen, and he'd seen her eyes wander to some of the more muscular campers as they splashed and swam. That wouldn't do today. He needed to wow her. And so, not being much of an athlete and having no experience with older girls, he turned to the one activity at which he excelled. Archery. He'd been Wilderness Scout state champion two years in a row. Trenton knew that it was a dorky distinction, but he thought he could leverage it. Zoe's three minions had objected to the idea until she admitted that it might be fun. Then they were suddenly game. Stopping at the recreation building for equipment, they'd encountered a who's who of the camp's misfits and outcasts, all collecting bows and arrows to try and kill the rest of the afternoon. Apparently, the more socially awkward campers had finished their bracelets and keychains in the craft shop and were now, en masse, taking up Trent's sport. This was not a good sign. These are really good arrows, Trent said, pulling them from the center of the target, actually boring himself. They used to have these crummy blunt-tipped practice arrows here, he continued, unable to stop himself from filling the silence. But they replaced them last year. Yeah, these fly a little truer. Huh, Zoe answered, without looking up from her phone. Campers weren't supposed to have phones out of their cabins, but most of the permanent staff seemed to assume Zoe was a volunteer counselor, so no one challenged her. Trent deflated a bit. This had played out better in his mind. By this point, he should be standing close behind Zoe, helping her with her stance and aim, able to take in the lavender smell of her hair. She'd giggle and defer to his knowledge of such a chivalrous art. Maybe there'd be a joke or two about Cupid and his bow. Or not. Trent couldn't decide if that was clever or stupid. It didn't matter now, though, as Zoe had failed to hit the target twice and summarily given up. So yeah, Trenton droned, bringing the arrows back to the line. Good arrows can mean the difference between hitting center ring and, like, the third or fourth ring. Beyond her, Jason mouthed the word smooth and gave him a sarcastic thumbs up, which was oddly fitting as Jason had played bass in a garage band called Sarcastic Thumbs Up for the past couple years. Zoe snickered at something on her device's screen. Who are you texting? Ashley asked. That college guy? Zoe shook her head. I'm reading an essay in The New Yorker. Trenton felt a full-on panic setting in, like he was literally watching his chances with this girl fade away like the photo of Marty McFly. 
And this girl wasn't even a girl. She was a bona fide woman reading thinking magazines on her phone, referencing foreign films and indie bands, and in every way standing out from her fellow campers. Even the act of blowing Trent off while he tried so desperately to impress her somehow made her that much more attractive. He was gawking at her again, taken aback anew by her beauty. She was petite but not scrawny, with fair skin and hair the color of dark coffee pulled up in a high bun. While the rest of the girls were dressed in shorts and t-shirts, Zoe wore a knee-length red dress that flared out at the bottom, fastened with a comically large belt. It looked to Trenton like the kind of dress an inventor would put on a Japanese robot to make it look less like a robot, but somehow it worked perfectly on her. She'd have been at home on a fashion magazine, but somehow didn't seem out of place in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, either. Sensing his eyes boring into her, Zoe looked up from her phone. Trenton forced his mouth shut, and the world's worst wingman let out a snicker. An awkward moment came and went, taking its time. This is lame, Trenton finally admitted. You think? Ashley said, through a heavy sneer. Well, what do you guys want to do? I'm going to change before dinner, announced Sadie, who had worn no fewer than 15 different outfits over the course of the week. We'll come with you, Zoe said, offering a small conciliatory wave at Trenton. Sorry, Trent. Sit by me at session? Definitely. The girls were gone in a matter of seconds, leaving a pile of bows and arrows behind, a vivid reminder that Cupid had yet to land a shot. After a dinner of oddly wet chicken nuggets doled out by the dozen from metal tubs, the teens were corralled into the program center for the evening's session, which consisted of worship and a sermonette. Trent was still in the boys' washroom, double-checking his hair and delivering a pep talk to the man in the mirror when the large iron bell rang, announcing the start of session. He ran down to the old pine building and into the back of the auditorium, jostling past pool tables, his eyes scanning the crowd of 80 or so high school students and a dozen adult counselors. He spied Zoe and then Jason, the two flanking a very inviting empty seat. Jason was fiddling with something on his lap, while Zoe spoke in hushed tones with her friends. As Trenton slipped in between them, it occurred to him that, in all their time together as a group this week, he had not seen Zoe and Jason exchange more than a few words. In fact, it was hard to imagine them having an actual conversation. Zoe was so mature and sophisticated, something that challenged Trent to find his own serious side, to start accomplishing things that mattered. Jason, on the other hand, acted pretty much like he had a few years ago when they were in middle school never taking anything seriously, appealing to Trent's latent adolescent, the part of him that laughed at dirty limericks and fart jokes. Jason had supplied a running commentary of observations and punchlines through all of the week's sessions, providing all the more incentive for Trenton to distance himself from his friend by crowding the Zoe side of his chair. A youth pastor with an acoustic guitar and a tenuous, if overconfident, grasp on the latest slang called them all to their feet to, quote, kick out the jams for Jesus. He howled through a few praise and worship songs, during which Jason made a show of clapping on the offbeat. Zoe closed her eyes and sang along with passion. Unable to carry a tune, Trenton mumbled the lyrics and tried to keep his eyes and mind off of her and on the Almighty, who was, ostensibly, receiving their words of devotion. After a few too many songs, they all sat down, and Dean, the camp director, took the makeshift stage, planted beneath a row of oversized day-glow letters spelling out the words, INSANE FAITH, in all caps. Have a seat, have a seat, he said. 
The campers retrieved their Bibles from their chairs and settled in. Trenton found himself suddenly aware of his radical teens study Bible, teens with a Z, well-loved and largely held together by packing tape. He knew it backwards and forwards, and it had been an invaluable help to him over the years, especially through his mother's sickness and the months that followed her death. But it was a kid's item, emblazoned with bright colors and a zany font. To his right, Jason had the same Bible, albeit showing far less wear. They had received them as gifts from the church upon entering sixth grade. Glancing at Zoe's simple leather-bound volume, he made the decision to upgrade to something more grown-up upon arriving back home. Folks, this is our last night together, Dean said in a raspy half-whisper. That's sad, but it's not. Am I right? No one seemed to know if he was right. Now, before we get into the word, I want to ask a new friend of mine to come up and share a little announcement. His name is Mike Van Buren, and I'm ecstatic about what he's doing here at Picture Falls. You see, when I was about your age, we had this awesome program called Youth Leadership Boot Camp. It was a chance for the future leaders of the church to get some hands-on training, do some short-term missions projects, and get really serious about our faith. Goes perfectly with our theme this year. He gestured at the huge letters above his head. Sadly, that program bit the dust the year after I graduated high school, and it's been lying dormant for, well, I won't tell you how many years. He laughed. No one else did. Anyway, Mike came to me a few weeks ago to ask about the prospect of relaunching Youth Leadership Boot Camp, and I'm excited to say we're doing it. Mike? An energetic man in his mid-thirties bounded onto the stage, somehow drawing a good deal of applause by his very presence. His red hair was close-cropped, and a couple of tattoos spilled out from beneath his Under Armour shirt onto his biceps. "'Thanks, Dean,' he said. "'Before I even get started, let me just say, I know this is last minute. But we didn't want to wait another whole year before relaunching this vital program. It's too important. So, here's my spiel. If you want to leave ordinary behind and take your faith to the next level, I mean really crank it up, I want you to consider stepping up to the challenge.' Your counselors are handing out some information right now. Read it and pray about it. If you want in, we're kicking this thing off with a three-day retreat right here at Picture Falls. It starts a week from Monday, just 10 days from now. Again, I know it's short notice, but who doesn't want more time up at camp? Anyway, I promise it won't kill you. If you have any questions, I'll be here tomorrow for closing program, and I'd love to talk to you and your parents about this. You guys hold up, Jason called as they filed out of the program center. Trenton pretended not to hear him and picked up the pace, recognizing the tone and look in his friend's eye, which betrayed mischief of some kind. Trenton was in no mood for it. He was on borrowed time. Guys, Jason said again. Zoe! She stopped and turned to face him. Yes? He looked around furtively before saying, Listen, we were thinking, let's blow off campfire tonight and climb the devil's tail. Trenton shot him a look. There was no we here. How obnoxious. The devil's what? Zoe asked. Jason gasped. You don't know about... He turned to Trenton. Dude, she doesn't know about the devil's tale. She just moved here from Vermont. It's her first time up here. Why would she know about it? Jason laughed. Oh, you're gonna love it? It's this trail that starts behind the nurse's cabin, goes all the way up the hill, past the waterfall, then back around and comes out by the lake. Campers used to hike it all the time, but it's off-limits now. Is it dangerous or something? Zoe asked. Not if you're with someone who knows the trail. Trenton opened his mouth to shoot the idea down, 
but then realized it was actually pretty solid. Campfire was a raucous communal time, capped with a short devotion and followed by a parade of toothbrushing and then lights out. Zoe had first reached over and interlaced her fingers with his at Wednesday's campfire, and he liked that prospect, but it would certainly not permit any real one-on-one conversation. I don't know, Ashley said. Hiking? That sounds kind of dreadful. Then don't come, Zoe said, evenly, not even looking at her. I think it sounds great. I'm going to go change. We can meet you behind the... We can meet behind the nurse's cabin right after the bell rings. I'll change too, Sadie said. Dude, you are so in, Jason whispered as they waited in the darkness behind the nurse's cabin for the girls to arrive. Seriously, she is so hot and so into you, you need to take her to the old camp. Just shut up, Trenton chided. Can't make out? Do it. Do it. Camp Mukwa was a dilapidated Methodist camp, no longer used and, like the devil's tail, off-limits to the Picture Falls campers. It was known colloquially as Camp Makeout, as it was an infamous site for clandestine meetings among campers of the opposite sex. You scared? You scared? Jason jeered. More accusation than question. No, I just... Why would I take her to the old camp? What's the old camp? Zoe asked, appearing silently and seemingly out of thin air, wearing a long black sweater and leggings. Ninja! Jason exclaimed, trying to cover his embarrassment. How long were you, um... Trenton shot him a lethal look. The old Methodist camp. It's about a half mile beyond the boys' cabins in the woods. It's just sort of a quiet place. People go to talk. Are the others coming, or is it just us? They're right behind me. As the six of them began their ascent of the devil's tail, Zoe took Trenton's hand, her quick steps making it difficult for him to keep up. Her three friends followed in a line, struggling to remain about a step and a half behind her like royal attendants. Why'd they make this off-limits? Zoe asked, when Trenton suggested they stop to admire the view of the lake over the tree line. The view was okay, but what he really wanted was a few minutes of rest. Jason answered from the back of the procession. It's kind of our fault. Me and Trent. No, it's not, Trenton said. Yeah, Yes, it is. Let me tell the story. I really don't think they want to hear, Oh, this sounds good, Ashley interjected. The others agreed, even Anna, who rarely said anything. It's not even a story, Trenton warned. Oh, yes, it is, Jason assured, plopping down on a thick, bench-like route. The very year they outlawed climbing this hill, the very year, Trent and I were hiking the Devil's Tail. You're going to find out soon that the way up is kind of steep, but the way down is nuts, and it's really sandy, so you have to sort of lurch from tree to tree to keep from tumbling down. But me and Trent were young and dumb back then, and as we near the top, we start daring each other to run down. Being super macho 7th graders, we both decide to do it. Now, I'm faster than him, so, oh, give me a break. I totally am. Why else would I have been in front of you? But even though I'm faster, I was keeping it tight, you know? Like I didn't want to get going too fast and hit a tree and die like that hippie singer guy. But Big T here, he wants to pass me. So he just starts running as fast as he can, and he completely loses all control. And for some reason, and I've completely forgiven him for this... He comes up behind me and decides to stop himself by grabbing a hold of me. So he basically tackles me. And I hit the ground and we're going so fast that he's like riding me down the trail like a toboggan through the sand. The girls were all laughing, even Zoe. Trenton willed his friend to quit while they were ahead. And so the two of us are just flying down the trail, he continued. 
We must have gone more than halfway down before we finally hit a root or a rock or something and came to a stop. We're both crying like little kids. We're all cut up and bruised and dirty and everything. I mean, me more than him because I was directly on the ground, but we're both looking bad. And my hair is all full of his tears and snot. Okay, Jason, that's probably... So anyway, we're both sobbing and we're all ripped up and bleeding and we come limping into camp and everyone's like, did you get attacked by a bear or what? And we told them all what happened. And the next year, on the very first day, they announced that no one was allowed to climb the trail without an adult chaperone. Trenton fumed silently. Of all the stories that he could tell, why would Jason choose one that painted him as a crying little boy? Ashley floated over to Jason's side. You poor thing, she said. Jason milked it for all it was worth. Of course he could somehow come out on top, even after that story. Well, it took a few years of therapy, you know, physical, occupational, spiritual, but I eventually moved past it. I don't know about Trent, though. Shell of a man, this guy. Zoe began climbing again, and they all followed suit. You guys have been friends for a long time, then, she said. All our lives, Jason answered, since we were babies, until this traitor left me. What do you mean? Ashley asked, still stuck to his side. Let's just say Zoe's not the only one whose family moved far from home this summer. Far from home, Trenton objected. The parsonage is like six blocks from your house. But you used to be right next door, man. What's a parsonage? Sadie asked. It's a house owned by a church where the minister lives, Zoe said. But I thought you said your dad was a police officer. He's actually both, Trenton answered. Kind of in process of transitioning from cop to pastor. That's an interesting move. What brought that on? She pulled herself up over a large root spilling across the path. Insane faith, actually. My dad was in a study group that read it. Then he led another group in our house. Then he decided that he had to give up his career and become a pastor. So now he's a seminary student and the chief of police and the pastor of the local church all at the same time. I don't see him very much. Zoe squeezed his hand. Sorry. They all climbed quietly for a while, until Ashley broke the silence. So Jason, do you have a girlfriend? You know, it's funny you should ask because I actually don't. Completely available over here. Interesting, she answered. Where do you call home, Ashley? He asked. Cadillac? Huh, not too far from us. What about you, Trenton? Ashley asked. I'm from Clint Rock. No, I mean, do you have a girlfriend? Before he could answer, Jason said, No girlfriend, but my boy has a stalker. Her name's Judith, and she loves him. She's not a stalker. Trenton wished his friend would trip and fall back down to the head of the trail. She's just a friend. Don't believe it, Jason said. And she's a little nuts. I mean, she's a good friend of mine, and she's sort of cute in a weird stalkery way, but do not cross her. What kind of name is Judith? Sadie sneered. Is she an old lady? No, she's in our grade, Jason said, but not from our planet. Zoe, you just moved to Clinch Rock, right? You'll probably run into her. She's the only girl on the wrestling team. Oh, no, Ashley laughed. Your stalker's a wrestler? She doesn't wrestle anymore, Trent mumbled. Right, right, Jason said. She got kicked off for being too violent or something. Guys, can we please not talk about Judith? She's my friend, and she's a good person, and she's not a stalker. Jason bit down a smile. No, but she could totally drop it, Zoe commanded. Jason obeyed. They trudged on a bit further before Trenton held up a hand and whispered, Stop a second. Listen. What is that? Sadie asked. Pictured falls. Zoe squinted into the darkness, looking for the source of the sound. Trenton shook his head. 
It's a ways up the slope. You can't see it. But in the daytime, it's gorgeous. She wrapped her hand around Trent's arm and leaned her head on his shoulder. He felt himself lift an inch off the ground and said, There's another trail that branches off from here and goes up to the brink, but it's kind of overgrown. I've never hiked it. They stood there, enjoying the sound for a couple minutes, until Jason started entertaining again. Then they began their descent, down the steep and sandy second half of the Devil's Tail. Trent went first, from tree to tree, crisscrossing the trail. Then Zoe came, landing in his arms each time. He had to admit, he owed Jason a big one for this idea. In fact, he was thinking that this night could not possibly be going better as they left the trail and headed out onto the beach. That's when Zoe said, You guys go on ahead. Trenton's going to show me the old camp. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel, copyright 2017, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me via email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, the way God intended it. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you may want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut 